the one I want is that one. There we go. And oh, that's interesting. Okay, let's just make it maximized. Okay, that's great. Let's read the passage together, shall we? We've got just a few verses tonight uh, from Revelation chapter three, the next of the seven letters, the letter to Sardis. So Revelation chapter three, verse one. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, that's the letter we have to look at tonight. And uh, it's quite interesting, actually. I think the first time I ever spoke about this letter, these verses in my life, was actually at Great Parks years ago in the days of John Wilkes. So that's back a while, but uh, it's great to be doing it again with you. And uh, I hope I've learned a wee bit more about it in the meantime. <laughs> Anyhow, let's have a look at this story. Sardis, where is Sardis? That's the, 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 the city or the remains of it that you can see in the picture there. And uh, I want to just, before we look at the letter, uh, mention four facts about Sardis, because as you know, with each of these letters, they're written in a way that takes account of local circumstances that reflect some of the things that are going on in the neighborhood and some of the history of the church and the city that's being referred to. So four facts about Sardis. The first one's this. Sardis had always been an incredibly wealthy and sophisticated place. Sardis is a city which uh, in its, its antiquity and its power just outstrips any of the other letters uh, of the seven, including Ephesus. It wasn't as big as Ephesus, but it had a lot more prestige. Well, it went back, for example, to about 3000 BC. So it had been a city for a very, very long time. It was an incredibly wealthy place. Uh, not only was it a great trading center, it was in a very good position. If you look at this map, you can see that orange bit there, um, uh, which is, 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 is the ancient kingdom of Lydia. And you'll see that Sardis, the capital of it, is right there, just a little bit lower than Pergamum. And uh, Thyatira is not that far away either, as you know. But Sardis was a much more important city. It was the capital of the region. And for that reason, it was very wealthy. As you can see, it uh, um, controls the trade route between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. And that means you can tax anybody that wants to go through there. And everybody wants to go through there. So it was a city that had enormous wealth. It was also built in a place where there was lots of natural uh, wealth too. Um, let's have a look. Uh, this is King Croesus, one of the most famous uh, kings of Lydia, uh, who ruled in Sardis in, uh, in about 600 BC. Croesus, well, we, we have a saying still, as, as rich as Croesus, don't we? Because he was a guy who was supposed to have more money than anybody else in the world. And that was partly because in his city, there was a river that flowed through the river Pacalus, which started in the hills up above the city, those mountains that you see at the back there, and which contained lots of gold. 
You could actually pan for gold in the city. And as you watched the city, the, the, the river running through, you'd see flashes of gold in it occasionally. There was gold all over the place. And uh, so Sardis had always been very proud of its wealth and its influence. It was a stylish, sophisticated place. And that's the first fact you need to know about Sardis. Now, it stayed that way because unlike Thyatira, which was open to anybody attacking it, Sardis was incredibly difficult to conquer. That's because of that great big hill at the back of it that you probably saw in the first picture, the Acropolis of Sardis. If ever an enemy tried to attack the city, you just retreat up the hill. And the fortress at the top of the hill up there was almost impossible to get to. I mean, it's a sheer rock face. How do you get uh, onto uh, that surface so that you can fight uh, uh, a battle? If people tried to get across a little land bridge onto the uh, Acropolis, you just needed one soldier to stand there and just knock them off one after another as they came up and uh, they'd never managed to, to uh, get through to the city. Um, so it was a very, very difficult, impregnable kind of city. As a result, life in Sardis was peaceful and rich and rewarding. It was a stylish place. It was a place where people dressed well. It was a place where the general level of income was pretty high and it wasn't attacked much as, as, as we've noticed. It's a city where the Jews who had settled there uh, maybe 300 years before this letter was written, obviously did well in the local community. We know that the biggest synagogue in the ancient world was to be planted in, in uh, Sardis shortly after this letter was written. And uh, uh, looking at the, the ruins of shops in Sardis, we found all sorts of Jewish inscriptions that make it obvious that there was no persecution in the city. It was possible to be a Jew or a Christian without anybody um, bothering you. It was a very live and let live kind of a place. So it was a place where you could just go and fall asleep, basically. Uh, this is one of the buildings, the gymnasium of, of Sardis. A gymnasium in those days wasn't just a place where you went to, to do your exercises. It was also a place of learning. And uh, as you can see, the Sardis gymnasium is fantastically big, well-equipped, and uh, one of the, 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 the best gymnasiums in the ancient world. It was just such a wealthy place. Here's your fourth fact, though. About 70 years before Revelation was written, there was an earthquake that destroyed most of the city. It happened, I think, in, in 17 AD. And uh, the city was just so important to the Roman Empire that uh, the Romans paid an absolute fortune to have the whole place rebuilt and remodeled. Um, uh, they put in, for example, thermal heating in all of the shops so that people who were shopping wouldn't get cold. And uh, it was an enormously um, effective heating system. No one else in the world had it, but Sardis had it. And uh, they restored the ancient drainage and, and sewage system. Most cities had no sewage system, but Sardis had had one for 600 years. And so although it had fallen apart and it collapsed, it had all been strengthened and rebuilt. Now, you might see how some of these things apply to what we've read in the letter already, but let's just spell that out a bit. Let's, let's look at the start of it. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, it begins. You remember all of the letters uh, to the seven churches begin with a description of Jesus, which fits that letter in particular. And here it's Jesus is the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Seven spirits of God? You might think, well, hang on a minute. I thought God was a trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, just one of him. So where's this seven coming from? 
Well, actually, you've probably seen it before in Revelation because right back in chapter one, John starts off like this. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne. And that's a bit alarming, isn't it? How many Holy Spirits are there? And you find the same thing coming up in chapter four and chapter five again, seven spirits, seven spirits. What does that mean? Well, it wouldn't have been difficult for somebody, especially with a Jewish background in John's time, to understand what the, the spirit, the, uh, the spirit is, is saying here to the church. And this is uh, Isaiah chapter 11, which uh, Jews for years and years had interpreted as talking about the sevenfold spirit of God. The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might and power, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. If you count that out, it comes to seven. And so they used to talk about the sevenfold spirit, just one of him, but operating in seven different ways. So when John talks about the seven spirits, He's talking about the completeness, the wholeness of the Holy Spirit and the fact that he does everything that God requires him to do. The Spirit is perfect and complete. Seven is the number of completeness in the Bible, as you know. And uh, so he holds in his hand, Jesus does, the seven spirits. The Holy Spirit speaks through him, operates to bring glory to him, does what he says. The Spirit of the Lord rests upon Jesus and what Isaiah was saying in chapter 11, let's face it, if you read it, was a prophecy of the one who was to come. And it's applied to Jesus in the New Testament. So Jesus and the Spirit are as close as it could be. Jesus holds the Spirit in his hand. But Jesus holds something else in his hand as well. And that's the seven stars. What are the stars? Well, we're told that earlier on in Revelation, aren't we? The seven stars are the angels of the churches. Now, does that mean supernatural angels? Probably not, because the word angel, angelos in Greek, just means messenger. And the angel of the church seems to be the person in the church who takes responsibility, who's in charge of, of, of writing the letters and making the arrangements and things like that. And that's why each of the, the, the letters starts, to the angel of the church, write. It's talking about church leadership. And uh, so what John is saying by this introduction uh, to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? He holds the seven spirits and the seven stars is Jesus is the one who holds all the power of the Holy Spirit. And he also holds the leadership of the churches in his hands to lead a church is an important thing. It's something you should never take lightly because the leadership is ultimately in Jesus hands. There's security in that, though, too, isn't it? Because it means if you're a church leader, you're not in there on your own fighting to make sense of it. You're held in Jesus' hand, too. And he's as committed to the leadership of the churches as he possibly could be. And so Jesus is introduced in this way because, first of all, he's the one who wants the spirit to do more in Sardis. And second, he's the one who has the concerns of the church most at heart. He has a right to speak to Sardis in a way that nobody else does. And that's important because he's got some fairly critical things to say. OK, so let's go on from there. What does what does he say next? He starts talking about the uh, problems of the church in Sardis. I know your deeds, he says. And normally when he says that in one of the seven letters, it's because he's got things to praise. Not in Sardis, though. When he says, I know your deeds. He's saying, you can't fool me. 
I know exactly what's going on in your church and it's not good. The problems with Sardis, first of all, it had a false reputation. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You know, Christians are forgiving people. They're people who like to think the best of you. And so it's possible to have a reputation in the Christian world, which is completely away from the reality of who you actually are. And that's possible for a church as well. You can have the idea that a church is a fantastic place to be. It's doing a wonderful work. And you can have that reputation as a church for years and years, while all the time it's slipping away from you. And the reputation for life, which you once so earned and once deserved, has just disappeared completely. And that was the thing about Sardis. It was wealthy, it was powerful, but it was a very complacent kind of a place. Interestingly, about nine years after the earthquake, um, there was a competition to see which of ten cities in the Roman Empire would get the honour of building a temple to the emperor. And in the end, it came down to a shootout between Sardis and Izmir, Smyrna, just down the road. And in the end, Smyrna won. Why? Because the submission from uh, Sardis spoke only about the past. We were founded in 3000 BC. We were the city of King Croesus. We have a fantastic reputation. And when you read the submission in Rome, they said, well, yeah, you've got a great past. But what are you doing now? And what's the future going to look like? And so the reputation that they had was what they were trading on. And it was all slipping away and leaving them bit by bit. Second, it was pretty much dead. The reputation uh, was a false one because the, the, the church was almost finished. Jesus says, in fact, bluntly, you are dead. But then he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. So clearly there was something hanging on there. There was a flicker of life in the church still, or there'd be no point in writing to it. But it was pretty much dead. It wasn't doing what it was supposed to any longer. It wasn't responding to Jesus, the head of the church. And that's what happens when you're dead. You're out of contact with the world you used to live in. You don't respond anymore. It wasn't doing anything. Corpses don't do anything very much. They just lie there. And there are lots of churches just lying there, not responsive to the voice of Jesus. There was a flicker of life left in Sardis, but that was all it was. Even what was still living was about to die. And Jesus gives them this warning now because it, they're on the brink. They can still come back to life if they really want to. But if they don't, within a very short space of time, they will be dead. And Jesus says, you know, the trouble is your deeds uh, are, were not completed. I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. And it's too possible for a church to do that, isn't it? It's possible for an individual to do that, to start out well, to do everything just right for a while, and then just to sort of tail off as time goes by. And you stop doing the things that you plan to do. You stop having the goals that you set for yourself. You, you, you settle down into mediocrity and just getting by. And Jesus says, your deeds are not complete. There's stuff that you, you know you should be doing. There's stuff that I need you to do for the, the good of my kingdom, and you're not completing it. You've done a little bit of the job, and you're not going to do any more than that. And so he says, it's in danger of unexpected judgment. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. And that's a chilling thought, isn't it? You don't know how much trouble you're in. Paul says that in several other places too, doesn't he? People who are in a similar situation. Let him who thinks he is standing 
take heed lest he fall. You can think you're doing fine and actually be a million miles away from where you used to be. You can have a reputation with other people, which is a false reputation because what used to look like vibrant life is flickering to survive and might die very quickly. And Jesus says, you won't be expecting the judgment. It will happen to you when you least expect it. I will come like a thief in the night and you won't know when I'm coming because you're so out of touch with the reality of the situation. Now, that had happened in Sardis twice before. It was a very difficult place to attack, but it wasn't impossible. There's the Acropolis, the old fortifications up at the top. How do you take uh, command of something like that? Well, um, in the uh, year 560 BC, Cyrus, the conqueror of Persia, who very much wanted to take over Lydia as well, came to the gates of Sardis. And the citizens retreated into the Acropolis and they thought they were safe up there. Nobody could attack them up there. And Cyrus just camped around and waited. There's plenty of water flowing into the city, so they had no problem. There's lots of food up there. They could sit out the seas, they thought. But Cyrus told his army that if anybody could find a way into the Acropolis, he'd give them a fortune. And there was, there was one soldier called, I think, Hierodates, who just started to watch the sentries at the top of the hill. And one day he saw something really interesting. There was a sentry standing on the edge of the hill and uh, he uh, took off his helmet and it fell over the ramparts. And without thinking what he was doing, he climbed over the wall to get his, 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 his helmet back. It had stuck in a crevice, maybe 20 feet down. And he climbed over the wall and went down over the rampart and picked up his helmet. And he was using an old goat path, which you couldn't see from the ground down below, but which was obviously there. And so Hieradates went straight away to, 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 to Cyrus and said, look, I found the way into the city. And that night, he and a few others went up the goat path, climbed over the wall. They found there were no sentries waiting for them because the people of Sardis were so sure they were safe, they hadn't even set sentries on the wall. And the city was conquered very, very quickly. Now, that might sound uh, 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 an amazing story that you would not, that you'd learn some lessons from. But amazingly, 300 years after that, another king called Antiochus, the one who started all these Antioch places around the place, um, came again and besieged Sardis. And you know what? Exactly the same thing happened. He found the path up the hill. There were no sentries on duty. And because the city was fast asleep, he was able to get in like a thief in the night. And judgment came when they weren't expecting it. So you can see what's going on here and why Jesus talks in, in this way to the city of Sardis. So how do you know when you're in a situation like this? Well, J. Hampton Keithley, an American uh, preacher who died uh, several years ago, a wise old man, said this. A church is in danger of death when it begins to worship its own past or history, its reputation or name, or the names in the church. It's in danger of death when it's more concerned with forms than with function and life. It's in danger of death when it's more concerned with numbers than with the spiritual quality of life it's producing in its people. It's in danger of death, fourth, when it's more involved with management than with ministry, or with the physical over the spiritual. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, this book, but um, it's challenged a lot of people over the last 20 years or so. A book called The Trellis and the Vine. 
and it's a book uh, written by two pastors in Australia uh, about the way the church goes to work. And it says when you look up at the way a gardener organizes his garden, there are some things that he does that don't produce growth. Like, for instance, putting up trellises and things for plants to grow up. It doesn't produce growth in itself. Trellises don't grow. That's dead wood. But you, you put them up all the same to encourage growth. It's just there as a support system. What does happen is that the vines grow up the trellis. And that's where the growth and the life of the garden comes from. And they said, and this is what the book is really about. If you look at the way that churches organize themselves, you will find that 80% of their activity is trellis activity. It's management. It's organization. It's making sure that everything happens in a, in a way and the flowers are put out on a Sunday and there are enough hymn books for everybody and whatever, you know, uh, the, 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 the technology is all working, that kind of thing. And the actual work that brings growth, the work of evangelism, the work of encouraging one another, the work of uh, individual discipling of believers in the church, that's the other 20%. And they're saying it shouldn't be that way. Trellis activities only happen so that the vine activities can take place. And the church is dying when the trellis takes over from the vine. Well, how do you resuscitate a church? This is um, where you start getting the recipe in the letter for what needs to happen. And here's what Jesus says. First of all, wake up. Well, it's not actually wake up in Greek. It's become watchful. Because he's not really talking about a church that's asleep. He's talking about a church that's in danger of death. And so what he says is become watchful. Start to see what's going on around you. Start to understand the signs of decline that there are in your midst. Become watchful. Look out for the things that need to be corrected. And when you start to spot some of those things, then you're waking up and smelling the coffee. That's what needs to happen first before anything else can happen. Second, strengthen what remains. There are still some good things going on in Sardis. There are still some, uh, some things, you've not completed them, but they're the right things, they're heading in the right direction. Strengthen those things. Just as way back in AD 17, your whole city fell down, apart from a few buildings. And after the earthquake, people came and looked at the ruins of Sardis and said, well, that will need to be pulled down. That's dangerous. We need to condemn that building. Oh, that one can be built up again. Let's strengthen the foundations. Let's build something else. Let's put in thermal heating. Strengthen what remains. Just as your city was rebuilt, so your church can be rebuilt. Or for that matter, your individual Christian life. Third thing, remember what you already know. And that's so important, isn't it? It's going back to basics. It's not some new kind of truth that you've never heard before that's going to make you uh, uh, revive. It's just the basics. It's going back to the, the, the things that you've already been told that you used to hold close and which you've, you think you've moved on from. Go back to those basics. You belong to Jesus. He is the king. The world needs to know. You need to live a different lifestyle. Those simple basic lessons that you knew when you were, you were Christians to start with, remember those. Go back to them. That's what you need. And the fourth thing, change direction. He says repent. And repent as you know, is the Greek word metanoia, which means to turn right round and start going in the opposite direction. Change direction. Okay, you're a wealthy church in Sardis. You're proud of your program. Your plans made for the next 10 years, goals and activities and things like that. Change it. You've got things that you enjoy doing and uh, they're not adding to the work of the gospel. They're just things you like doing together. Change it. 
Get rid of it. Turn around. Go in the direction you ought to be going and focus on those things that have got to happen. And if you do, final thing tonight, the promise. Jesus says, you have a few people in Sardis who have not yet soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white. Sardis was a pretty dressy place. You know, people had enough money to be able to dress pretty well. And to, live, to, to walk around in soiled clothes, well, it wasn't the sort of thing you did in Sardis. And you'd be treated, you know, as if you turned up at the Ritz in, in jeans and a T-shirt. I mean, either you've got to be a rock star or else, you know, you don't belong in that environment. And so people in soiled clothes were made to feel very much unwanted. And Jesus said, some of you, you have soiled your clothes without realizing it. And some of you not. And you will be dressed in white. What do white clothes stand for? Well, in the Roman world, it should have three things. The first thing was purity. And you'll find that again and again through the book of Revelation, won't you? White is the color of purity. You're heading in one direction. You're following one agenda. You don't have mixed motives. You just want to serve the king. And that's what you're about. It's also the color of triumph. Because whenever there was a war, for instance, and then the local heroes from Sardis came back and did their triumphal procession down the street, all of the citizens would turn out dressed in white to welcome them back and to be part of the triumph of the conquering army that had come back to its home city. And so white clothes were a sign of triumph as well. And then right throughout the ancient world, white clothes were a sign of celebration. There's a great verse in Ecclesiastes that says, always be dressed in white and let your head be anointed with oil. What does that mean? It means treat every day like a party. Because the only, day, the only time you wore white clothes in an agricultural country like Israel was when you were going to a celebration. You wouldn't do it to sort of muck out the barn or look after the animals or something like that. You wore white when you went to a party. And your head was anointed with oil when you were going to celebrate as well. And so white was the color of celebration. And when Jesus says, well, clothe, uh, these people will be clothed in white, he means they'll be pure. They'll be part of my triumph. And they'll be living a life of celebration and joy. You'll be in white clothes. Second, you'll be walking with Jesus. They'll walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. Is this talking about the triumphal procession again? Well, it might be. But it might be something else as well. It might just be talking about the fact that when you're, you're, you, you've got yourself sorted out and you've turned around, you live the way that Jesus wants you to live. And uh, as a result, you get closer and closer to him. You're, you become a friend of his in a way that you weren't before. It's like the dying thief, do you remember? Um, on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise was a, a Persian word for the king's garden the place where the king would walk with his favorite people. And just like the dying thief was invited into the king's special garden, so those who are dressed in white will get to know Jesus in a way they would never do otherwise. There's eternal security as well. I will never blot his name out from the book of life. And there's recognition in heaven. I'll acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. On the, the, the day I come back, his name will be mentioned by me, in front of God himself and all of the angelic hosts. He matters that much. She matters that much to me. And so the letter to Sardis is a wake-up call, isn't it? You can just carry on sleeping in your peace and your wealth and your illusion about who you are for the rest of your life until 
Finally, you go to sleep and the citadel is conquered and judgment comes like a thief in the night. Or you can wake up, you can strengthen what remains, and you can live the sort of life that God wants you to. Let's pray together for a second, shall we? Then I'll hand back to John. Heavenly Father, we want to serve you and we want our church in our day to be as effective as it possibly can be in its service of you. Help us not to drift into illusion about how well we're doing, either corporately or individually. Help us to understand where we are and how much land there yet remains to be possessed. How much more we still need to do to get to that place where you dream of us being. And help us make plans to get there. Help us strengthen what remains. Help us move on from what we've got into your future. And may we, at the end, be found dressed in white, part of your triumph, celebrating with you, walking with the king in his garden, because we've not fallen asleep on the job, but continued to be the kind of church you want us to be. We ask it for your namesake. Amen.